Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And imagine being able to sit down and have a meaningful conversation about leadership and crisis management with a highly decorated Navy SEAL who partnered with four-star General Stanley McChrystal to retool the U.S. military after 9-11. Well, that's this episode. Uh, We're joined today by Chris Fussell, and he's a legendary American hero. After his decorated career as a servant leader in the military, uh, he's now an entrepreneur who's the president of the McChrystal Group. And so he continues his uh, partnership with uh, Stan McChrystal. And now they um, consult and advise organizations around the world on leadership. And uh, frankly, they're helping many organizations right now uh, deal with this crisis. He's also the author of two bestsellers, Team of Teams and One Mission. And I've read both books and they're awesome. I highly recommend them. And if you're a leader of any kind, you're going to love this episode and you're probably going to want to take some notes. Also, we talk about a recent opinion piece that Chris and Stan wrote for the New York Times. And there's a link to that opinion piece in the New York Times at Lockhead, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, which I highly recommend uh, reading. We are sponsored by my dear friends at Oracle NetSuite. And in challenging times, it's critical to have real, up-to-date uh, facts and information about your business. Visit- visibility and control matter like never before. And that's uh, why NetSuite comes in. NetSuite is the number one cloud ERP system. It's one unified business management suite that encompasses all of your financials, your ERP, your CRM, e-commerce, omni-channel commerce, and more. Over 20,000 organizations around the world rely on NetSuite to get a full picture of their business, and you can too. To schedule your free product tour and your free guide, The Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, visit netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different to gain the visibility and control you need. Now, my friends at Splunk are the global leaders in data to everything, D2E. And Splunk helps you bring data to every question, every action, every decision, and every action. And organizations around the world are relying on Splunk right now to modernize and strengthen their cyber defenses because Splunk is one of the most uh, widely used and sophisticated data security technologies on the planet used to monitor, detect, and respond, and most importantly, resolve digital security threats. Visit Splunk.com slash D2E today and learn how to turn data into doing. That's Splunk.com slash D2E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Tribes that are connected through structure, and that's true with leadership and industry. It's true true all the way to the nation state, the way they run. And when the ability of those systems starts to be dismantled through separation of those tribes physically or what we're having to go through now in, in the U.S., and you, and you end up in this sort of disconnected state, the boundaries between those tribes that were connected under some sort of power structure, they start to weaken, right? And you end up with this very sort of balkanized system that can emerge. Um, like an immediate example in my community here, my wife and I live in the middle of Washington, D.C., 
our kid goes to public school that has, pulls a wide array of socioeconomic demographics into it. We're not going to see those families for six months, right? So those tribal differences will start to take hold. Leaders at those levels, principals, community leaders, church leaders, et cetera, they sit on top of these very distributed community networks. Whatever they can do to pull people, maintain the, that level of social cohesion now is, is critical. Otherwise, when there's food shortages on the other side of D.C., the people here on Capitol Hill aren't going to feel any sort of emotional connection to that reality. And that's how the inequity starts to bubble up in these types of situations very quickly. So tell me what you mean by social cohesion and these folks who lead these networks. Maybe pop the hood on that. Yeah, like what's what's the fabric that holds us together as a society beyond the, the cohesiveness that exists in, in a society, um, beyond your immediate family, community, socioeconomic uh, circles, um, which are the ones we run in, you know, 80% of the time, we're very comfortable there. But there's also a um, sort of a social structure that we can depend on that is, it's critical that we uh, reach across those, those boundaries. And that's why institutions like like a workplace that pulls from many different networks, um, from the executive down to the frontline folks, like a public school, a church that reaches across those boundaries, those create this, this fabric that, that pulls us together. And uh, any time you see that disrupted at scale for an extended period, you know, what we referred to throughout the 90s, pre-2001 pre as balkanization, right? The former Republic of Yugoslavia was a series of interconnected tribes, right? And, and that was disrupted. And suddenly, I mean, there was intermarriaging. You couldn't tell the difference between languages, et cetera, et cetera. And then it really mattered uh, within a 12-month period, whether you were Serb or Croat, et cetera, et cetera, um, even though their families had intermarried for generations. And fast forward just a few months, and they're killing each other, right? Um, so if you, that fabric starts to be unwoven, it's very hard to weave back together. And so you have a concern that essentially because we're all being told to stay at home, that the, the community fabric that then turns into the town fabric or city fabric, which then turns into a state, which then turns into a country fabric. And we, we have this shared identity called being, in our case, of course, Americans. Uh, and then, of course, there's the greater one, which, which is the connection between all of us as human beings, that because of the social distancing and isolation, those layers of connection may create tribalism or racism or, I mean, what do you see potentially happening? I think fortunately, we're a good ways away from like violence, like you've seen in other, uh, other parts of the world. But, you know, fast forward, if those things start, start to break and if there's going to be you know, the economic disruption here is going to be massive, right? I don't, I don't think we're even getting a sense of it yet. But fast forward over the next 12 or 18 months, the already extremely polarized uh, system that we're, has bubbled up over the last, you know, five, six years and acutely over the last three or four years only gets worse, right? Because the people at the bottom end of that are going to suffer the worst economically. They're going to suffer the worst um, medically as a result of this uh, follow-on from this pandemic. They are if there are going to be food shortages, it will be in those, uh, you know, uh, economically deprived neighborhoods. Um, if the National Guard is going to have to, you know, block off and, and prevent riots, it, it will be in those those types of neighborhoods. I mean, we've seen 
waves of this in our own history, obviously, but this is this could be an acute one. And, and one of the ways that I think leaders at every level have to step in and get ahead of this is by doing whatever they can to hold that social fabric together. Like, you know, the principal example is, is, is an easy and good one. You have a dis- distributed and very diverse community try to hold not just the kids together through online learning and home education, but the adults that are part of that system as well. So that when there is a food shortage on the other side of, of DC, that you have more um, affluent families who, who want to absolutely get engaged because they feel like they're personally connected to that situation. And so establishing or maintaining or establishing or fostering personal connections, particularly personal connections that cross socioeconomic lines you think are going to be critical to maintaining the fabric of, of a country and, and maintaining some stability here and ensuring that we don't have lawlessness? Is this sort of how I should think about it? Yeah. And if you, you know, if normally you solve through that, that through a coherent uh, national conversation where you have a steady and focused hand and, 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 planning coming from the national level and that can cascade down through those layers that you mentioned when that doesn't happen it's it starts to break down at the top and people immediately go into their inner inward view and that starts with family networks community networks basic localized tribalism which is the real risk um you know are we going to be the balkans where there's like massive violence on scale i no, not anytime soon because there's no impetus to do that but could we come out of this in a even worse far worse uh political um polarization than we've experienced in our lifetimes absolutely if we don't get ahead of it because you know a lot of those communities will come out of something like this understandably furious with the way that they were um treated throughout this 12 or 18 month process so if you think i don't know why this pops to my mind but um post katrina there was I remember this and there was anger, uh, particularly in the African-American community, that people with a lower economic status in life or people of color were treated unfairly post-Katrina. So is it that sort of thing that you're talking about, but potentially at a bigger scale? No, that's a great example. Think of of a Katrina-like catastrophe, which is what this is kind of building up to be on, on a national and then really an international scale. And... Yeah, that apply that that understandable anger across the entire nation over a 12 month cycle, not a 12 day cycle. So does that say, Chris, that we we as a society and therefore we as individuals, we need to think about things that we can do to try to. Um, I don't know why this is the word in my head. But I'll just say it overcorrect or overfocus on lower income neighborhoods, A, because it's fucking humane and B, if we want to make sure there's no social unrest, hey, let's make sure that people can eat and take care of each other. Yeah, no, totally. And I agree with that. And then also blowing it up to what are the hot spots? Like, um, you know, DC is just quiet right now. It's, you know, we got ahead of this kind of, so maybe we'll probably see a spike here in a few weeks, but um, maybe I'm proven wrong. I hope not. New York is a train wreck right now. Like, I don't know if you've been speaking to people in the cities, but hospital systems overwhelmed. I mean, we should be having a national level campaign right now to say, you know, what can we get to the people of New York to help them through this process? Right. So you could have a city come out of this and go of of 10 million people and go, Hey, what the the fuck? Right. 
you know yeah we needed face masks and you couldn't get us to i mean my 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 cousin's an, a young er doc in at mount sinai he's been wearing the same face mask for four days well, yeah. seeing like sev- 70 uh covid patients a day oh yeah. my god i mean it's like it's re- it's battlefield conditions it's insane and we're not having that in the in the national conversation well, and when you see uh, Mayor de Blasio on television saying, hey, if you have any of the following items, send them to us. And and yeah. and then the news announcer or, or journalist he's talking to says, are, are you asking private citizens to send you stuff? And he said, yes, I am. We're in trouble here. Yeah. No, that's and that's to have to have that level of leadership going out to the country, it shouldn't, I, I respect what he is doing. Absolutely. But that there's, that's not getting woven into the national conversation because we're not, because we don't have good national leadership right now. Well, uh, and to your shows. point, there's things we can do locally, right? For example, I have a connection to, to some folks in the food service business who sell to restaurants. Well, one of the things they sell are gloves, and their business is down 90% right now, and they're not selling very many gloves to restaurants. And so uh, we're currently trying to get our hands on uh, uh, to purchase 50 cases, maybe 100 cases of gloves. And we're just going to go give them to the hospital in Santa Cruz. Yeah, no, that's exact. I mean, I, my kids and I like putting together a care package for the, the ER docs at Mount Sinai, which is just insane to think that that, 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 that could be helpful. Yeah. And I mean, we see this, this is the flip side uh, on the positive, you know, we see extraordinary things happening, incredible acts of kindness coming from all sorts of places. And one of my favorite examples recently, there's a uh, former professional hockey player who used to play for the San Jose Sharks organization who started a, a successful chain of, of restaurants called Flights. His name is Alex Holt. And he was really ramping up and he done this thing in vegas and but it started here in silicon valley in los gatos and anyway when all this started he realized my whole business is going to the shitter and so he's like there's there's no point in continuing i'm you know you can see the you can see the cliff so he says rather than just coming completely off the rails i i currently have inventory of food i have people who know how to make food and he switched gears completely to try to feed the community and he mobilized other restaurant owners and other food service people. He put together a GoFundMe. And he's just like his whole dream and his whole business is, has evaporated. And the guy is focused every day right now on um, quote, uh, hashtag feed the need in the, um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. No, that's I mean, that's that's exactly the type of um, local leadership and community network building that will get us through this. And it's almost being done in spite of this head in the sand approach from the national leadership. So you still don't think we're wide eyed enough at the, I mean, not to get into no overly, I don't mean this politically, but we're not wide eyed enough and we're not, I don't know. How, how would you describe where we are with our leadership in Washington on this topic? I mean, I, I think you have some amazing people that are probably working 23 hours a day. But I think we have, you know, we, we, we've systematically dismantled bureaucracy for three years. And that, that's, that's what bureaucrats do. You know, there are people <laughs> that, that have PhDs in this sort of response, literally, who have been 
pushed out of this uh, and they, they exist and dedicate their lives to these sort of responses and they're not there or they don't have voice. Right. And so I think that the majority of very great people that are still inside our government uh, government and trying to drive effective action, it's, I can only sympathize with how hard it is for them to, to, to break through this sort of noise, which is where I think the, the real threat is. I just, I hope we learn um, the key lessons fr- from this moving forward around, Hey, they're, they're, Systems are important. Government leadership, you know, the dark state is bureaucrats that know how to make systems like this at work at scale, right? Under the, that sort of blanket term of like the deep states playing around to early discussion. Well, then call the whole DOD the deep state because it's full of lifelong people that get paid to prepare for things that we hope never happens, right? But when, the, when it does, you want them on, on call and ready to execute, right? So we've, I think, at our own peril, we've dismantled that. You know, it's no small irony that the cover of last month's Atlantic was uh, how to destroy a government, right? And and now we're reaping the uh, s- some of the headaches associated with that. It's terrifying to hear you say that. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot there, but I, I guess that maybe the thing that's on my mind is, you know, you guys just wrote this article. That's a great piece of work. You and uh, Stan, General McChrystal, uh, were thrust into a situation post 9-11 that, you know, and you and I, of course, talked about this in the past, that fundamentally had forced you guys to rethink warfare and how to make this work in a distributed, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a distributed network, field-based, bottom-up approach. Uh, but that's how I synthesize some of the things that you did and you've shared and some of your writing. But I'm, I'm curious about sort of what you learned post 9-11 that you think is most germane to leadership at this time. Yeah, I think there's there's some uh, interesting and, and sort of haunting parallels, right, um, between what happened then and what ha- what's happening now. And, and, and the underlying cause is the same stuff you and I have talked about in the past, right? The world is... Flat, flatter, faster, more interconnected than, than it was designed to be um, through technology and transportation, et cetera. And so what, what that did to us was, you know, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, all these things, they're just, they're, they're violent uh, ideologies that spread through uh, human-to-human connections, right? So it used to be I'd have to be in the same room with you to, to get you on board with this, like, deeply troubling ideology. I can now do that at scale through digital platforms, et cetera, I can reach around the world, which is why things like Al-Qaeda can grow so quickly, can be run, you know, relatively uh, effectively compared to what, what was imaginable 30 years ago, et cetera. So we didn't anticipate that. What we had was a top-down structure with small teams that were ready to go out and deploy and do great things, right? Al-Qaeda flipped that model um, because you could never uh, get ahead of it if you were looking at pinpoint problems. You had to look at it as a network. Then that led uh, Stan McChrystal and his leadership team but under his vision to say, we have to be not in our central headquarters pushing out. We have to put people next to this problem wherever it is. And realizing it was a global problem, that meant he suddenly took this centralized things and it was globally distributed, right? Because we had to get informed and independent teams, independent interactions, as close to these fast-moving network problems as possible, right? So that was sort of the, the process part. Then McChrystal realized for this to be... A, cohesive and effective and more importantly for me to maintain some sort of culture inside of this you know 20,000 plus 
organization that's now spread around the world, we need to leverage modern communications as our new backbone, right? So he started calling it digital leadership. That will be our, we're not going to be in the same room again, perhaps for years, right? And we will, we will fall apart that our version of social fabric, our, our cultural fabric will start to tether immediately if we don't find a way to solve for this. Now we're facing a problem. It's a, it's a disease pandemic, obviously, but it's passing through human networks and the you, anything can be anywhere in the world in 36 hours now, so including disease, right? So that explains the spread in a very similar fashion. The reaction is also similar. We have to now distribute ourselves to get out of the way of the spread, which means social distancing, social isolation, et cetera, inside major organizations, inside uh, education system, uh, community organizations, church, small business, et cetera. And so we are now separated into our own, own homes as we wait for this uh, this to, to spread and hopefully subside, et cetera, we can get control of it. Big organizations who are a combination of small tribes, like your small sales team, your small SEAL platoon, same idea, uh, that are held together under some sort of org chart structure that C-suite can look down and say, okay, here's how we, how we build ourselves out to execute. That structure doesn't matter. Uh, much anymore because now everybody is distributed into the small teams. Network methodology and behavior are starting to take over. So leaders need to come up with a different way to communicate, right? aggressively communicating with as many people as they can inside the organization, or they're going to lose those those tethers between those those teams, right? So what McChrystal ended up doing in, in that old world was, and I know we've spoken about this, but we lived on a 24-7 cadence for years on end. He would spend the first hour to hour and a half of every day on a video teleconference with seven or 8,000 people. That seemed extreme a month ago. Now, I, I would say that's the new reality for, you know, for large companies, especially in the Fortune 500 realm, C-suite needs to be on uh, communication platforms where they are on video looking at their people, eyeball to eyeball, even if it's through a platform, every day, every other day, on a hyper cadence so that people can see, there's my leadership. I understand what they are thinking. I understand where we're heading in the market. That gives me that top-down sense of security, and I'm less likely to have to pivot inwards and just look at my immediate family, local team, etc., to gain some sort of uh, cohesion. Right. So it, it it it's the same thing that that I saw McChrystal go through and that we transformed into. That I think is going to be critical for the next six or eight months for business. So you, there's two phrases you used there that really stuck out in, to me. The first one was aggressively communicate. And it's a lot of leaders have, particularly when they don't have the answers and particularly when they don't know what's going to happen, they're like, well, I don't want to look stupid. So I'm kind of going to run from it. That's the opposite of what we need to be doing right now. Yes. Radical transparency, yeah. radical, aggressive communication. No, that's, that's exactly right. Um, one of the dynamics of um, what's happening right now is the, all of us are now thrust into fighting in a very complex, and by that I mean a, a, an interconnected, sort of unpredictable ecosystem that's driven by, by networks, disease networks, social networks, tribal networks, etc., which is what happens when that, that org structure gets, gets ripped out from underneath us or from above us in this case. And so if you are trying to depend on your old leadership tools of let me wait and I'll get enough information up from the people underneath me. And then once a quarter, once a month, I'll be able to go out and sound like the very smart and highly informed senior leader. 
um, that just doesn't work anymore, right? So if you are moving fast enough to keep up with this pace of change, and we've talked to industry leaders, they're like, it's different every six hours right now. Like by tomorrow morning, it's already too late. You have to be willing to A, get everybody into a platform, not just your C-suite or your small team, but hundreds or thousands of people listening to and having a conversation on a regular cadence. Um, and then leaders need to show up and go, okay, what's ha- what's happening? Like you're the closest to the problems. What, what do we need to be talking about? And don't be afraid to look stupid or ask, ask dumb questions. That was an, an important pivot that I saw McChrystal mirror for, for our organization brilliantly for years on end, stepping into that daily communication where he had been thinking up and out, meeting with, you know, four stars and, and heads of state, et cetera, et cetera, while all the action was happening. And then he would come back in and say, okay, what happened? Like what, what's going on? Not acting like he knew everything, right? So he would throw out new ideas. He would ask questions that we like, wow, he should know that already. But he was just demonstrating like, it's not my job to know that. It's my job to be here and listen. And leaders have to get comfortable with that. Like, like yesterday. I mean, this is already happening to us. It, th- it took us 12 months to, to, to sort of get our hands around the, what this felt like. We don't have that long to play with right now. So this distinction between it's not my job to know everything, it's my job to listen. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the bumper stickers that we really believe in and try to share widely is in a complex environment, you, you shift from a knowledge is power economy which is very traditional structure. I know more than the people in it beneath me, and that's how I get my power in the, in the system, to sharing is power. He who shares fastest wins, right? So if I, if I could build out a, an effective organizational culture and have a network-based communication system, which now we don't really have an option there otherwise, and learn how to culturally share into that and listen to it in response, we're going to get ahead and, and survive through this, right? If I try to depend on traditional knowledge is power models, uh, it, it simply won't work. The environment is changing too quickly. Sharing is power. Sharing is power. Now, you guys also teach about, you, you most recently wrote about it in the New York Times, this phrase you use, digital leadership. And so, Chris, I'm curious how um, you and Stan and the whole team there, how you distinguish sort of traditional leadership versus this idea of digital leadership? Yeah, it's one of those that um, I, I'll be the first to admit. I've been too close to this for, for, gosh, almost 20 years now, right? And so you say these things sound intuitive. And, and when I when you have these conversations with uh, executives about digital leadership, understandably, they'll say, well, you know, we have Microsoft 365 and we connect remotely and da, da, da. Like, that's most big businesses are really good at, at the transactional side of that and they have the infrastructure, et cetera. But um, I would say that's, that's digital project management, that's digital information sharing, digital coordination, but digital leadership is a different, it's a different muscle, right? Um, and what, and we have to get there quickly, right? To the earlier point, um, I try to encourage senior leaders, like remember when you're on a small team or even now in the C-suite, there's a, there's a, point in your day when you are uh, sort of in the small enough inner tr- inner circle, inner tribe, where you'll put your feet up and, and really kind of scratch your head and say, you know, I don't know, how are we going to solve this? You know, what what's working, what isn't? And then we get into bigger and bigger forums all the way out to like the town hall, et cetera. And it gets more stale, more rigid, more cleaned up. And, and we oftentimes, I think all of us are guilty of equating that to leadership. Well, 
leadership is when you walk out on the stage and you read the, the quarterly sort of keynote presentation to 2,000 people. And I would say that's, that's an important management skill, but um, real leadership is walking out there and having an honest discussion with your people. Right? People can see that level of uh, genuine you when you, when you present it to them. Uh, but it's risky. It's, it's, it, you know, it, it takes a certain level of vulnerability and you feel exposed, et cetera. Um, in a complex environment like we're in now, all of us are in now, you really don't have a choice. Right? So this idea of digital leadership is how do, you, how do you inject that leader, real, genuine, authentic leader personality into a digital platform? It's hard to do in a, in a, in a keynote in front of, when you're physically with thousands of people. Now you have to do it through these digital medium, right? And so leaders have to think about um, what are the tools and tricks that I can put in place to make that effective? Um, when, I, when I look out and I, when I call on the, uh, the West Coast office, I'm not just going to okay over to uh, you know Santa Cruz. What's go- what's going on out there? I want to say, hey, we're going over to Chris and his team. Um, hey, how's the surf out there today? Really appreciate what you guys are doing. Saw the latest uh, report you sent up. It's really really helpful. I pushed it onto the team in New York. Hey, and uh, by the way, I heard your, uh, it's your it's your wife's birthday. That's that's great. I hope you guys find some time to celebrate. Whatever it takes to create that like sense of, I know we're separated by screens right now but we are still a family. We're still a team and we are all uh, trying to inject our culture of leadership into these platforms. It's critical. Uh, otherwise we go static. We just stare at cameras and we think that's not really a person on the other side. It really is a person. Yeah. They need their leaders to be there with them. And I think what you're saying is so powerful and I, uh, it's hard to know how things are going to change as a result of this, other than knowing for sure a lot of things are going to change. But one of them I wonder is if this, a digital leadership uh, at scale thing really does change because I think people are going to find, you know, if you believe the propaganda from, from the online dating industry, by way of example, that 50% roughly of marriages now in the United States originate digitally, right? E- even if that was, even if it was 25%, it's a massive number. And so, and if you think of your, your, your spousal relationship as your primary and, and therefore most powerful relationship, if, half the people in the country meet digitally, it says something about what can happen amongst people digitally, right? And, you know, you and I have never met in person. I don't know. I feel a connection to you for sure. Eddie Yoon and I uh, agreed to write a book together. We're working on what'll be his second book and my third book together before we ever met in person. Uh, I've never met the producer of my podcast in person. <laughs> and these are all examples of, of individuals uh, that I personally have developed incredible relationships with. People that I'd say to you, not, not to get overly corny, but people that I love, that um, our primary way of interacting is and probably always will be a, a digital one. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And if you've lived it, you get everything you're saying to me sounds just intuitively obvious, right? Because you, you've lived in that world. I've lived in that world. Um, I live in that world today. And um, most have not had to do that. Mo- most are very proficient at um, leveraging this technology in today's economy. Most haven't done what you're talking about at, at any sort of scale. Um, we got thrust into that so quickly that in, in a very similar fashion, I can think of you know more stories than I can recall of 
interacting with people face to face back in that old world, or even years after, and giving a big bear hug, catching up, and then realizing, dude, we've never been in the same room together. Like this is ser- this is literally the first time I've ever seen you. Yeah. And you just it didn't it didn't even occur to you until you really sat down and did the math. And frankly, there was there were some relations here that I'm like I can't remember if and when we were ever connected physically, because we learned this skill and art, I would argue, of digital leadership, like really being present with people through these platforms. And it also sounds like one of the things that you're, you're, you're underscoring here is in the, certainly in the McChrystal example, daily in this case, interactions, communications with potentially thousands of people. And so if you're the, if you're the CEO of a fortune 500 company, figure out a way to get on a platform with people and communicate with them. They need to see you digitally and you need to be doing that shit on a super regular basis. To, and to your point, Chris, at scale. Yeah, that's right. And it's, um, you know, the, the, the technology is, it's at all our fingertips. It's just um, being comfortable in how you're going to leverage it, which is what really, um, really matters. And then there's, there's blocking and tackling that goes into that, right? If it, you have to have you have to put the right structures in place. You know you have to have somebody that runs those things so that they're crisp and meaningful. And you have to you can use it as a knowledge management tool. You're capturing notes and et cetera, et cetera. So that that stuff is where we tend to get hung up. I always encourage senior leaders get get the right. It's not a huge number of people. There are only two or three people on Crystal staff that were really involved in doing that every single day. Uh, the, the 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 blocking and tackling piece. Get that done right, and then you don't take a note. Don't read a thing. Just talk. Just have an hour, 40 minutes, an hour and a half, whatever it has to be for your team. Listen and talk as if it was just you and that one other person on the screen having a conversation. Do that with multiple people around your enterprise every single day and you can you can take your culture online. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. You know, I, I know a CEO of a a uh, very large technology company who uh, just recently, re- as a result of this, retooled and added resources to um, his personal communications team because he's going to get super forward on his skis about doing exactly what you're describing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know because we've had these conversations, there are heads of IT right now, like banging on doors or trying to get on the phone with executives saying, look, this is a different, this is a different thing, right? We're, we'll get everybody up on the platform, but like we really have to get robust in how we're, um, how we're thinking this through, let us get the right systems in place, et cetera. And, and, you know, in our group, I mean, we're, a, we're a tiny little hundred person firm, firm. We're, we're distributed around the world, right? We have people all over the place. Um, but we've, uh, we've immediately gone to a 24 seven cycle. So at a one hour meeting, Every day at eight o'clock East Eastern, everybody in the firm's invited to it and building up our home systems to whatever is, you know, economically feasible, right? Because we want, you want that video to be as crisp as possible because the better I can see you, the more I feel like I'm in your room. So you, you take those things very seriously. And then the building blocks are really building out the, uh, the digital leadership concept. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm reminded of something Eric Yuan said to me uh, quite a while ago now. He's the founder and CEO of Zoom. And um, I was asking him about the, um, the feature they have where you can sort of make it look like you're on the beach in Hawaii or you're at some fabulous location or whatever. You can change the backgrounds. And, yeah. um, and I, I thought it just came out of a whimsical 
kind of notion. And what he shared with me was, uh, well, partially, but the other part of it was we found out that some people didn't uh, want to expose their living circumstances <laughs> for one reason. You know, there's a lot of dishes in the, in the, in, in this, in the sink or something, or, you know, whatever it was, they didn't want their, their environment to be exposed. And so by giving them <laughs> the ability to do that, it made them more comfortable being on video. And if they were on video, then they could look at each other in the eye and then, you know, this connection could happen. So it, it's, it's just interesting to me to see the little subtle things uh, that can be done with technology to make it easier and easier and easier, and more and more comfortable for people to connect digitally. Yeah, no, no you're exactly right. And, and um, it's easy for, um, it's great that, that that was recognized. It's easy for the more senior you get in any organization, we've all been, can be guilty of this throughout our careers to forget like, Hey, not everybody like has an entire home video package and, and a home office to, to take calls from. Right. So think that through, have some empathy for folks in your organization, um, that aren't used to being on like webinars and video calls, et cetera, which, which becomes more and more your routine as you get more senior. And then when you, when you dial them in, understand like, this isn't quite second nature for all of them. It, there's a lot of social media, et cetera. Those sorts of platforms are second nature, but having a conversation with the executives from their home office, which may be in a little bit of disarray given the madness going on, and uh, they know there's 400 people online, that's a, that's a different muscle for them. So pull yeah. them in, be encouraging, be nice, uh, recognize how stressful their lives are right now economically they've got kids running around the house uh etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean we're all going through this together so to your earlier point don't try to come into that and just be the perfect crisp top-down leader just talk to them like they're people we're all going through this together and those those teams that coalesce around that are the ones that are going to come through this uh the best and be stronger on the backside. now one of the other things you and stan write about is demonstrate candor maybe talk to me about why you think that's important. The importance of maintaining real candor throughout something like this. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, uh, we've seen it with some of our uh, elected officials. We've seen it with some business leaders. You know, there's certain people, people that are, have clearly been less than candid. We, and I don't want to get political with you. And we have people who are less than candid, sold a bunch of fucking stock and then told us what was really up, uh, which uh, uh, I think they should go to jail. But that that's a, a side point. I think, um, you know, there's a, you see a lot of people spinning, a lot of people trying to put uh, whipped cream on dog shit right now. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of ways you could emphasize why it's so important. Um, let me pick a few of them. One, it's the humane thing to do. No one in our lifetime has seen something like this unless, you know, someone lived through the Spanish flu, right? Um, there have been pockets of it, but the whole, this is, I'm, tr I'm trying to emphasize my kids who are 11 and 9. This is the first and most memorable moment of your lives, right? So we have to approach it as a team, right? And, and try to put it in some sort of understandable context for them. The world hasn't seen this in, in our lifetime. So if you're trying to act like, that's not the case so that you know something that others don't it's it's bullshit like everybody knows we are collectively as a as a species trying to figure out how we're going to manage this some are doing it better than others there's pockets of uh success and failure all over the place so don't think you can sidestep that no a leader at any level you have to lead with honest uh candor to your point just to to recognize the humanity of, of the moment the other is practical this is changing things like this this is obviously a very dramatic example 
having lived a, a version of this in, in the uh, counterterrorism world. These are such hard problems that are changing so quickly. Networks are, are fundamentally unpredictable and a state of near constant or constant change. And so if you think you can roll in and say, I've read the briefing paper, here's what we're doing next. Everybody that's close to the problem knows you're full of it, right? Because I can hear myself in that report. I wrote that two days ago. It's already outdated. So you're trying to act smart based on something I could tell you right now as the original point of insight that that's no longer true. So just step in here and say, here's what I know. Um, it might be a little bit outdated. Any updates? And then you come to me and go, yes, thank you for asking. Here's what was true two days ago. Here's the current reality. People will see this is a leader who is trying to genuinely understand what's happening and set us in a directionally correct position, knowing that he or she cannot possibly give point-to-point instruction every time they, they put themselves in front of us. That's kind of the two big buckets to your question. One is just candor is the necessary to a human response in a situation like this. And the other, it's, it's the only way to lead when it's this yeah. uh, complex. And the other one I think of on, in this regard, Chris, is, look, we all know bullshit when we hear it. Right. Like, I hate when companies talk in these stupid terms like, um, well, this quarter we had declining revenue growth. What? Yeah, right. Right. Sales were down. Is that what you're trying to tell me? You moron. Why don't you speak English? Right. And so all that bizno babble. And I'm, you know, of course, I, I didn't serve in the military, but there's 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 military and government biz babble. Right. That that. that People can talk and say words and not really mean anything. All that has to go. Uh, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, no one's going to, uh, no one has time for it, right? And, and, and it's easy to get in a big bureaucracy, get caught up into like, how do we clean this up for corporate language? Just cut that out. Speak. And that, that's why I try to use that analogy of what's the point? How many doors need to close and how small does the group need to get before you put your feet up and go, oh, shit. All right, team, here's the deal. Find that leader and put him or her in front of all those people and they will thank you for it. And they will be on your team. As soon as you introduce the corporate language, you've lost them. Yeah. I find myself more and more over time, Chris, using this expression. Just tell me exactly what you're telling me. You know, like there's so many people who dance around it or are trying to massage it or or whatever. It's like, just tell me what you're telling me. Right. No, it's, it's a great point, Chris. And like one of the ways this applies in normal times, I think even more so now that leaders, if they really do want to make this pivot quickly, this isn't just a C-suite thing, right? It's ingrained in all of us. Like, here's how you speak in a corporate environment. Um, break that by doing exactly what you just said. When I'm your you know, region head for XYZ and I, and I come to you with that sort of discussion or that's how I'm framing what's going on in my world, um, you can say back to me in front of hundreds or thousands, okay, Chris, let me, let me say back to you what I think I just heard, which is sales are down. And we think it's because the competition's moving faster. Is that correct? And then you can just cut through all my like 40-page slide deck, et cetera, et cetera. Like, <laughs> Hand-waving. Yeah, yeah, that's much it, right. Um, yeah. So enough with the like fancy pie charts and all that. Sales are down, competition moves faster. We need to move quicker. How do we do that, right? Same sort of thing applies here, right? Don't don't let it come up. Don't push it back down. Just get to real language. Now, the other thing that you and Stan talk about in the uh, in the Times piece is uh, an interesting idea: give up more authority than feels natural. 
Yeah, it's the same with the, it, it, it's all part of the sort of network dynamics and, and methodology. You have to be willing to, and it's super uncomfortable, right? Um, the people that know what to do are right there next to the problem, right? So you have to give that team, that leader, the autonomy and the information that he or she needs to make decisions. And if you want them to come back to you and ask for permission, the opportunity will be gone, the risk will be too great, et cetera, et cetera. So now more than ever, if you look at it just through your traditional playbook, you have to get very uncomfortable very fast, pushing, pushing, pushing out out to the edge, which is why that really big transparent communication structure, getting that in place, it gives you those check-in points. I'm not a big sports analogy uh, person because I only wrestled. There's no big uh, sports analogies from wrestling really, but it's like, uh, you know, now more than ever, we're in, think of like a football cadence, right? You run the play, you rehuddle. You run the play, you rehuddle, and that there's 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 decentralized chaos when you run run the play, and then you huddle back up and you say, "Here's what we're going to do next." You get in, get insight, you get smarter as a team, and you repeat, repeat, repeat that cycle. That sort of mentality is more important now than ever. So maybe use a wrestling analogy. Uh, you you don't want to be caught in a double leg a double leg takedown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'm yeah, trying yeah. here, Chris. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and it, it's my best wrestling coach ever told me this is probably somewhat applicable. He said, anytime you get your butt kicked, he would say, Well, son, there's two ways to learn shock and repetition. And that was shock. <laughs> shock and repetition. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, if you get shocked, you don't need to, you don't need to repeat it, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, I'm also a little curious, you know, you guys run, uh, I think what most people would call a mid-sized consulting firm. You know, you're not a one person firm. You're not a six person firm. You've got a hundred people and you got them in, uh, distributed in, in places around. And, and so you have a real firm that you're uh, the president of. And so how are you guys as a, as a company, as a consulting firm uh, dealing with this situation? Yeah, I mean it's it's um, as as challenging as any other part of the market, right? Um, we are very fortunate in in um, a few ways. One, the the level of talent that we have on this team is uh, is awe inspiring. Frankly, um, it's honored to be a part of it, um, and and that's you know only a few came from the military background. It's a very diverse team from other parts of you know where we've recruited from over the years. So, and so they just put their heads down and started, started rowing, which is, is phenomenal um, to see and understand that, you know, the situation at hand. And then we also have a methodology that we've had in place from day one when this firm started that now we've been able to ramp up and, and live into. And I mean, there are things that are unavoidable, like a, cha a chaotic environment is going to inject uh, chaos into how you figure out the initial solutions. Right. But the faster you can get through that sort of storming phase, the more you can start to start to normalize yourself into how you're going to answer what was a black swan, um, you know, six six weeks ago, right? So I would say we've we've dealt with it through tried through methodology and just just great people, um, and I think organizations out there have been my experience the last ten years since I got out of the military. Um, far more talent sitting under the hood than they might imagine um, because it can get lost in sort of the slowness and, and rigor of bureaucracy um, and very implementable uh, processes that can connect those people that now is, is I don't think a, uh, a choice anymore. This is, 
some sort of methodology like this is what's going to get us all through this. There are government or organizations of one sort or another that you you are uh, actively engaged with helping as it relates to uh, this whole situation that we're all dealing with? Yes, uh, er- early stage, but we are hoping to grow those quickly. Um, I would argue what ultimately is going to be part of this um, is not just um, the city of X or the whatever state. Those are critical, right? But it's going to be networks on top of those. Um, state governors having some sort of network that ties them together, which already exists, but how do we leverage that towards uh, focused actions, distribution of lessons, uh, distribution of resources, et cetera, et cetera. Same thing at the state level. Um, the city of LA is going to learn lessons that the city of Chicago, that the city of uh, Detroit, et cetera, can all learn from in real time. And so we're, we're looking for ways that we can help those leaders think through not just how they'll solve things at the, at the local level, because they've got a bunch of talent focused right there, but how can we create networks on top of this that can share insights, resources, et cetera. That was the intelligence. That was the key to really the magic of what uh, McChrystal built out in the global counterterrorism force was recognizing that the action that this, you know, 20 person unit just did in this Northeast corner of Baghdad, how quickly can we get those insights to, this small team over here in Afghanistan or this one person team in the middle of Africa who's trying to coordinate with local forces because the problem is interconnected in real time. And so we have to be the same, right? So that's one of the ways I think as a nation we can get through this. Well, I'm really glad to hear you guys are doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Cause uh, I, that's exactly what I want you guys doing. But you said something that sort of is interesting to me. In, this is how I'm, so I'm trying to synthesize all of this in terms of what you did back post 9-11 and now what you're doing is the big learning here. What we got to do is we're going to have these bottom up, highly distributed, but yet highly connected uh, groups of folks working on stuff, right? Call that a distributed network. And what we're doing is creating and or capturing some kind of Uh, intellectual property, intellectual capital around things that are working and not working, capturing them as quickly as possible, and then distributing them as quickly as possible. So so, um, one node of the network can make exponentially more people, more organizations, more teams, smarter, faster, more effective, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's a, it's a distributed bottoms up network that is focused on the creation and or capture of intellectual capital around what works and doesn't work such that that can scale and we can move faster than we otherwise might've. But that's yeah, my no, that's synthesis. Right. That's a very good uh, capture. I would, I would break that down in just a slight, slightly more yeah. nuance to say, what am I trying to share across those, those networks? Right. Um, you can use a city analogy, you can use a battlefield analogy, but let's just say you and I and 18 other people have different nodes sitting on top of this problem, right? And so why would we connect? We connect, and this is true in business too, right? That's where our work has been historically, but it's acute right now. We will connect. Um, it's worth our time to connect if we can share across those boundaries real-time intelligence. And the intelligence here is, um, you know, how, how quickly is this thing spreading? What's the count, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, and someone will make good use of that information, right? We'll look at how we manage our containment inside of different cities. So real-time intelligence sharing. 
uh, real-time resource distribution that can be personnel, that can be equipment, et cetera. For us, that was, okay, now we've identified based on that intelligence, Chris is closer to the problem. Therefore, his team is going to get the following resources for the next 12 hours, uh, that, that sort of view. Um, and then best practices. What did this team just learn as this threat uh, morphs and changes how it's going to approach interacting with us? Every single night in our world, there were multiple real-time lessons that were critical. They, they were doing this yesterday, and now they're doing this. This, this is a new type of IED they're using. Here's a new uh, type of uh, uh, triggering device that's being used, et cetera, et cetera. Sharing those in mass as quickly as you can across your network so that others are at least aware of it. If not, someone else says, oh, we have a solution for that. Let me share that just as quickly back into the entire network. So coming up with some sort of clarity around we're doing this so we can share intelligence fast, we can share uh, best practices fast, and we can distribute resources based on where the fight matters most right now. I, th- I think I got it. I love it. It's a, it's, it's a fascinating set of insights. And I hope at the government level in our country and, and certainly at the corporate level, more and more people embrace these ideas. And of course, uh, our bil- you tell me, but our ability to do this today is uh, meaningfully better than when uh, you and Stan were doing this. If for no other reason, where we are with the technology that allows us this sort of bottoms up network based approach. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, this was done with, uh, you know, PowerPoint and a bunch of conference phones at first. Right. And so that that has only gotten better. That that said, and you, you know, this world as well, well, as I do and much better. There is a potential downside when it gets the UI is so good. It's so easy to plug in and just see people that you forget. Um, hey, we really need to work at this and make sure we're doing it effectively, that digital leadership idea. And identifying why what are we trying to get out of this what are we sharing how do we how do we make this a cultural foundation etc yeah makes all the sense in the world now chris i want to be super respectful of your time i, I could talk to you for 23 straight hours i think um although i would want alcohol <laughs> but um is there anything else you'd want to touch on before we wrap no i i probably like yourself i've got um just stacked um i could, same thing maybe maybe when this all settles we can have a a beer on the beach and finally meet face to face. I'm dying. I'm dying for that day. And if, if it doesn't come soon, we can do it virtually. <laughs> That's, we might have to, man. And the other thing I got to ask you is, you know, you and I are both fight fans. I, I don't know what to do on Saturday night anymore. There's no UFC fights. Oh dude, I know they, they, my son just started wrestling this year and they just, you know, they canceled the, the NCAAs, uh, understandably, but I, we were thinking about shooting up for those at Penn state. And, uh, I mean, I was just, we were having breakfast the other morning going, God, can you imagine being like a, not everybody's a, a you know, a three-time national champ. Imagine that, that senior who just made the nationals and had a chance of, you know, getting seven plates, getting his all American win this year. And now it just got pulled out from underneath him. I mean, this just, uh, it's so tough for athletes out there. I know it's in relative scale, a smaller issue, but if you're growing up in that world, you just know the heartbreak that's going on right now. Well, I, I do think about the athletes. Carrie Walsh Jennings came on the podcast a while ago and I stayed in touch with her and we've sort of become pretty friendly. And, you know, she's just an, an American treasure, greatest volleyball player of all time and was just absolutely busting her, you know, hump to be in the Olympics. I think she's she's 40 or she might be 41 or 42. I'm not sure, but she's sort of right around there. Uh, I think this was going to be her, f- 
either fourth or fifth Olympics. And so I just know, I mean, she has been training for this Olympics, like in a dedicated, committed way for the better part of four years since the last Olympics, but certainly like way hard for two years or more. And I have a sense of what her, her life and commitment has been to this. And, you know, it's looking like the Olympics won't happen. I can't imagine it now, but who knows, but probably not. And so, yeah, you think about all those athletes, um, particularly those, you know, Steph Curry's going to be just fine, right? LeBron James is going to be just fine. But whether it's athletes, Olympic athletes or uh, fighters who, who are, are not wealthy um, and if they don't fight, they don't eat. Um, and many Olympic athletes who, of course, make very little, if, if, if any money doing it, they do it for, for mostly out of love. And so, yeah, all those opportunities, they're all out the window. Yeah, no, it's um, the trickle down on this thing is, is uh, it's going to be deeper and wider than we're starting to even get our heads around now. So my heart goes out to them. Yeah. Um, well, it's great to talk to you, man. I really appreciate the, uh, the time. Uh, absolutely. I, I love you guys. You're amazing. You're incredibly inspiring. I'm so glad to see you and Stan out there in the public, publishing in the New York Times, doing stuff like this. And um, it's great to connect. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. This is your podcast, buddy. Anytime you want to come, you or Stan or anyone else in your world, you let me know. Thanks, brother. Hey, I'm going to push you that, um, that little playbook that I mentioned. Just drill it, put on your website. If it could be helpful to anybody, uh, it's all there. Yeah, we'll link to that. We'll link to the new uh, article in the Times. And anything else you want us to link to, send me the URLs and we'll put them in the show notes for this episode. Thanks, brother. Be safe. Well, there he is, the legendary Chris Fussell. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, to learn more about Chris, Stanley McChrystal, and the entire McChrystal Group and what they're doing to help leaders around the world right now, visit uh, McChrystalGroup.com. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org, helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Uh, if you're a podcaster or you're a leader looking to do corporate podcasts, we use squadcast.fm for the vast majority of our episodes. Visit squadcast.fm today for the professional squadcast platform. Uh, my friends at Interview Valet are the leaders in podcast interview marketing. If you're a thought leader, get your leading thoughts on the best podcast, the leading podcast in the world at interviewvalet.com. My friends at Atrenet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Uh, visit them today, atre.net. And please don't forget your local hospitals, churches, and charities, and local businesses who need us all right now. And I'll also a special shout out to the extraordinary folks at doctorswithoutborders.org all places we can make a difference today. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is only for people who value real, inspiring, different conversations and is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. Uh, we must warn you that the creators of this podcast have probably been consuming libations. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. A technical awesomeness by Jamie J and Sarah Knox, including Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Support our military and our law enforcement. And hey, a gigantic heartfelt thank you to our healthcare heroes and our retail heroes and all of our heroes around the world who are stepping up 
to support themselves, their families, their friends, and their communities. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Richard Burr. Sorry, Dick, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you investing part of your life with me. Uh, Stay healthy, stay legendary, and of course, follow your difference.